0: This is Eye on Education on the Agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: Hello there and thank you for downloading the Eye on Education podcast for the 13th of May. In celebration of Friday and schools closing at midday, we hosted our special segment on schools and this week we discussed whether the British curriculum is still the gold standard for schools. We also talked about why students are dropping out of US universities in droves and whether it's something we need to worry about here. We also asked school principal Claire Turnbull whether we have enough quality teachers to cater for Dubai's rapidly expanding school system. And we crossed live to Finland to find out how children are taught in their classrooms there. Plus, how much money should we be giving our children as pocket money? This is Eye on Education on the Agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guilford, Dubai.
0: Now it is time for us to turn our attention to all the top schools stories of the week. It is time for our special Eye on Education segment. And it has been quite a busy week when it comes to education stories. Zena has been keeping her eye close to the ground. That's the wrong expression, is it? It should be ear. <laughs> She's been keeping her ear close to the ground. Its eyes peeled and ear close to the ground. That's the expression. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Sorry murdering the English language this morning. Um, and and you found lots of stories,
2: including this, um, on the cost of education. Right, yeah. The amount spent on financing education doesn't quite match the view that education is important. Those are the thoughts of uh, Priyadarshini Joshi. She's a research officer on UNESCO's uh, Global Education Monitoring Report Team, or GEM. It released a report in April saying that $4.7 trillion is spent on education worldwide Annually, but only 0.5 percent, or half a percent, of that is spent in low-income countries. And she also said that said that the annual financing gap needed for basic education could be matched by like three days of military spending. So ring number. So when you put it that way, you just realize how underfunded education is in many parts of the world. And that is why we have segments like My Classroom. So we can, you know, we can find out what the situation is in uh, with students and how they learn in other parts of the world and what else they need.
0: Yeah, really interesting stuff. My Classroom, of course, will be uh, next. Uh, it'll be, we go at 12.45, we do the My Classroom segment. Uh, right, just uh, breaking news this morning. Riyadh's first British International School for Girls has opened this morning. The principal of the UK-based Down House promised to inspire a generation of young Saudi women to take their place on the national and world stage. Now, the school is one of the most highly regarded for female students in Britain. And they said that their Riyadh branch will offer a global curriculum utilising the latest education advances in the developed world. Now, what's interesting about Down House is a lot of my friends went to it. Really? So yeah, it's yeah. a posh school? It's a very posh school. Uh, it's an all-girls school. It's very posh, but they don't turn out wet blankets. They turn out women who want to be leaders, it's fair to say, and who do very, very well. So these Saudi girls are not going to come out of that school wanting to sit quietly in the corner. They're going to want to come out to you know as leaders. That's so,
2: exciting. So is it is just for Saudi girls? Because there are a lot of British families also relocating to Saudi Arabia. That's and, true. And you know, this school will well
0: oh my he- our headmistress is leaving i wonder if she's going there to run that put the pieces
2: together yeah
0: call all of a sudden the 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 Maybe that's where, because my children are at a British school here, and the headmistress announced about a month ago that she was leaving, so maybe that's where she's going. Gosh, okay. There you go. (laughs) Well, speaking
2: of teachers and hiring teachers, there are more than 400 teaching jobs on offer in the Emirates ahead of the new academic year, and that's according to an article in The National. They found that jobs have been advertised for several positions, and these positions include uh, classroom teachers, music tutors, uh, subject specialists, those focusing on special education needs very... In demand as well as leadership roles. So, while close to 250 jobs are located in Dubai, there are more than 100 vacancies in Abu Dhabi and close to a dozen in Sharjah. There are some in the Northern Emirates too, and most of the jobs have a May deadline for applications and an August start date. As you know, uh, the next academic year starts at the end of August. So, they're being advertised by a company called Tess formerly Times Educational Supplement.
0: Yeah, that's literally the byword in uh, sort of where you look for education stories and jobs. And we will be discussing the impact of these vacancies on schools here in the UAE and whether or not we have enough quality teachers to fill all those positions. Uh, That conversation just after midday with the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, who is called Claire Turnbull. Right, a Syrian refugee has been named the winner of a global initiative to encourage Arabs to train as professional computer. Professional computer coders, Mahmoud Shahoud, who's 32, was awarded the one million dollar prize after undergoing training and developing the one million Arab coders competitions winning software project. Uh, he's a software engineer. He fled war in his home country in 2013 and moved to Turkey. And he took advantage of the free offer of training in coding, which is you know often called the language of the future. After spotting the competition on Facebook back in 2018, he had developed an app called habit 360 and it helps people build new habits track their progress and stay motivated and he's not on the program is he
2: he's not i tried to get him on but he said that um, he excuse me he would be busy for the next two or three days i guess you know working on the app or keeping busy with his winnings well let's get him on next week then It's a good enough story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's Let's get him on next week. And I love this app. I think there's a, a story behind it. Obviously, with his life experience being a refugee, it must have inspired him to develop this kind of app. And I imagine a lot of people from his part of the world is already using it.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Really, really good to hear of that sort of inspiring uh, individual story there. Right, the number of students in the US who have attended colleges but left before completing their degree has risen considerably, hasn't it, Zee?
2: Yes, it's ri- it's risen to 39 million, up from 36 million in 2019. Uh, the figures have been recently released by the National Student Clearinghouse Research Centre. Now, education experts say this 8 0.6% increase partly reflects the impact of the pandemic on the academic outcomes of college students who faced unprecedented financial and personal challenges during the pandemic. And it's the same picture in the UK as new figures from Student Loans Company show. Uh, 18,000 students withdrew from courses by February of this year alone, an increase of more than 4,000 on 2021 and a 28% increase annually. And most of them lost their job or income, missed their studies because of illness, or had to stay home and care for family members who caught the virus. So very, very unfortunate.
0: Yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, uh, it's easy to read out these numbers sometimes on the radio without really thinking about what they mean. But 39 million, million
2: in the US. Yeah. How is that even possible? That's great. How, how are there that many students? I asked this question on LinkedIn, and one of the things that a lot of people, especially American-educated, um, you know, uh, professionals on LinkedIn, they were saying that it's all because of it's not uh, just the stress, but the student loans. Oh. you're 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 spending your whole life paying off a student loan, and you're not really getting ROI. You're not getting the job that you wanted to get, the salary that you wanted to get. Um, so there's there's something that needs to change in the system. There absolutely is. Now, one of the big topics that we are discussing this Friday is how much money
0: do you give your children as pocket money? My kids have been asking for a huge sum. They're nine and they're seven. And I am trying to figure out the going rate. Thank you so much for all the mums that have written in. Uh, in particular, Jess, uh, she says that uh, my sister drew up a contract with my seven-year-old to help him earn his pocket money there's a list of 10 to 15 items for example wipe the table after each meal 50 50 fills take out the trash 50 fills tidy up before bedtime one dirham leave for school drop-off before seven twenty. <laughs> one dirham so he's happy and we're happy too the contract was very professionally written and signed by all parties and even had a stamp jess thank you so much i like for that, that. i might copy that that's brilliant this is eye on education on the agenda
1: with the royal grammar school guildford dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people
0: right our hot topic today is the curriculum choices that parents face in this country now it's quite unusual if you live in the uk it's pretty much i mean there are a few schools that offer different curricula but basically it's the british curriculum or bust whereas here in the uae because there's i don't know 200 nationalities then you can pick and choose to a certain extent but what is actually the difference between the various curricula. Now we don't know, we still don't know whether it's curriculae, curricula or curriculums, but it doesn't matter because Zina has found
2: out basically what the basic differences are, haven't you Z? Yes. So to put it simply, the British curriculum A-levels require students to specialise in a relatively narrow range of three to four subjects only, whereas the IB diploma requires students to engage in a far broader range of learning areas. So that includes general learning skills. Uh, So more than a third of students in the UAE study in UK curriculum schools. And that's uh, based on data released by the KHDA. So it is the most popular education system in the UAE, certainly for expats. But is it changing as experts call for an overhaul to this educational system? And the perfect person to ask this was Tabitha Barda. She's a senior editor at schoolscompare.com. I spoke to her earlier. She's a product of the UK education system as well. And I asked her why uh, it's seen as the gold standard of education.
3: Parents, regardless of their nationality, are still choosing the British curriculum in the UAE and across the world because it's got a great reputation. It's grounded in excellent heritage. One in four world leaders had a British education of some sort. So it's an excellent grounding and it sort of opens doors to universities across the world. And it's a very, very good gold standard at the moment. It's also got some excellent qualifications. There's obviously the A-levels, uh, but there's also powerful technical qualifications. There's the BTEC. We don't hear as much about that, but it's actually often used by the IB for their own technical qualification, the career-related programme. The BTEC is regarded as an incredibly strong technical qualification, and it also adapts very quickly and is able to modernise. There are BTECs in, in gaming, which a school out here has, has launched It's also got a very well-regarded early years foundation stage, which is all play-based learning. It looks for argument, analysis and passion for the subject when it comes to the exam marking. So it's not just about rote learning. So there is a lot to be said for the British curriculum and British teachers are also hugely in demand. The British teacher training is very good. In general, the British curriculum is still very well-regarded and it's still very relevant.
2: And to your point about British teachers being uh, in demand, later we'll be speaking to the Royal Grammar School. They are uh, Mm -hmm. talking about the demand for teachers and the process of hiring quality uh, educators here in the UAE. Now, as you said, you know, the British education system, it's hundreds of years old, and in many ways, that's a good thing. As you said, it's associated with prestige. Uh, It's produced a lot of world leaders, and when you are... British educated, that piece of information just jumps out of your LinkedIn profile. But what are some things that, uh, you know, some officials, certain groups want to change in the curriculum?
3: There is a call for reform, I'd say it's not just necessarily of the English National Curriculum, but of education in general, and how we deliver education, and what we want our children to learn and to leave school with the kind of skills we want them to have. Do we just want them to have these qualifications? Or do we want them to be equipped with these sorts of skills that are going to help them? still teaching as you said in the same format as was designed for children hundreds of years ago a century ago and the world we live in now is obviously very different the jobs that we need to prepare children for may not yet exist or they may have to be self-employed so the question is does the traditional education structure sufficiently equip them with the skills they would need for this so that's a debate that's happening at the moment and it's why we're seeing new schools opening up in Dubai that are rethinking the classroom environment and the structure of the school day but we're also seeing new schools that are opening up that are emphasising the importance of the traditional values. There's a place for both of them. People are criticising the British system specifically in terms of the emphasis that it has on exams, particularly GCSEs. The, the IB doesn't have external examinations at, at that kind of stage. People feel that it's outdated to be giving external examinations to children when they're just 16. They were originally designed at a time when children left school at 16 quite often. Now that's not really the case. Children are largely obliged to stay in school until they're 18. Its place as a qualification for employers to standardise or benchmark against doesn't have the same relevance and exams don't serve every child well. Some children excel in an exam environment. Some some children work well under pressure and work well to just perform in a one-off exam scenario but for a lot of children one day where your qualification rests on that one day cannot serve them well. So that's the major argument. Is the emphasis on the exams?
2: And speaking of exams, uh, you, you know that we've, you know, made a huge adjustments in terms of how students sit exams during the pandemic. Do you see any changes being made to that particular part of the British education system? Has anyone made a move or a proposal for that to happen?
3: They are talking about the possibility of switching GCSEs to online. It's all a phase of flux at the moment. Everything's still being debated. A lot of people are calling just for an overhaul of... GCSEs generally. A lot of schools are happy that this year and parents and and students as well that this year they're actually able to sit them in person. There is something to be said for performing under pressure that is going to be a fact of everyone's life.
2: That's a really good point and I agree with you on that and of course there seems to be a battle between the British curriculum and the IB system. Can you explain the main difference? Lots of people saying you know children have more freedom, it's more practical than the British curriculum. It's
3: definitely a very heated debate and we have written extensively about it on Schools Compared because of that and people have very strong views on either side. They're very different. British curriculum we're all much more uh, likely to be familiar with. The IB is actually more of a philosophy. The big difference that you see is in the IB diploma and the A-levels and there's a much broader range of subjects that you're required to take at IB. Whereas at A-level, you just take three or four subjects. Now, that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the student that's taking the exam. The IB requires you to take a language. It requires you to take uh, science and math. That doesn't necessarily work for every child. In the lower years, the IB tends to be more values-based and it's less prescriptive in terms of the actual topics that you're studying. So... The way it's been explained to me is that rather than studying, say, the Second World War in history, you would be studying conflicts. And then every student is given the opportunity to choose the exact conflict that they would study. So it's, of tailored to the child so it's a really really different approach
2: a lot of british schools here in the uae certainly in dubai are very diverse you know comprised of many different nationalities for example uh, i've been speaking to uh, some indian parents and they say that it was their personal choice to enroll their children in a uk curriculum school instead of uh, an indian cbse curriculum Uh, so why do you think that it remains the most popular choice in the uae for a lot of nationalities
3: it's been the standard for a long time. It's been the gold standard. It still is for a lot of universities, especially. are very familiar with A-levels as a qualification. It's not so focused on rote-based learning. It's about analysis. It's about uh, critical analysis. It's about questioning. It's about reading around the topic. So it, it has a broad scope. That may not be the case with all other curriculums. And because it's so well-known... People feel comfortable with it. The British curriculum definitely still is the gold standard and definitely still is a really, really useful and powerful grounding for students in the UAE.
2: And just very briefly, Tabitha, when you were studying in the UK, what part of the education system did you like the most and what did you enjoy the least?
3: Ah, that's a really interesting question and it's funny because it's completely different to my own children. My son asked me the other day, what was your least favourite subject at school? And I said PE and he just didn't understand because he loves PE, that's his favourite. And I would say I am actually one of those children that is a bit of a crammer and didn't mind exams so much that's the weird thing it suits some people more than it suits others i'm even thinking about taking one of my children out into an ib school because i think that might suit him better the british curriculum will suit my other two children perfectly fine there's no one school for any child and i would say there's no one best curriculum for any child
2: so, I think that's the key takeaway from Tabitha Barda, senior editor at schoolscompared.com. There's not one best school for any child.
0: Really, really interesting stuff because, of course, you can pick almost any curriculum here in the UAE. This is Eye on Education on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to U 7.
0: Now, there are more than 200 nationalities living here in the United Arab Emirates. That's a statistic that we talk about all the time. But it also means that there are dozens of education options for children. Parents can pick the curricula from their home country or look around and choose their favourite. But when faced with that choice, what criteria should parents be considering? Now, personally, it was pretty easy for me. I'm British, so is my husband. We chose a British curriculum. But, for example, one family we know consists of a Spanish father and an English mother and they found it much harder to choose for them the language spoken in school the cost of the fees and the fact that their youngest is dyslexic has played a part but to be honest overall the British system has in many ways managed to dominate the independent global education landscape Uh, there are basically 6,000 British schools in total worldwide and British schools, or the British curriculum, is the most popular here in Dubai, according to the KHDA. They told us that 35% of schools are UK curriculum, and they are the top choice for students, followed by the Indian curriculum, which is 26% of schools, and then the US curriculum, which is 16%. Students studying in private schools actually represent a huge number of nationalities in this country, which basically shows the vast cultural diversity of the Emirates student community. But my goodness me, that doesn't make it easy to choose. So I'm joined on uh, in the studio now by Fiona McKenzie, MA. She is the head of Carfax Education UAE, who help, uh, who basically helps and advises parents to access the best education for their children. Fiona, thank you so much for coming into the studio. No, oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Really awesome. I'm still not over people being in person, uh, so it is really lovely to see you. See you. It's so <laughs> exciting to be back. It is. Yes, the pandemic's nearly over. Good news. Well, here at least. Um, Right. okay. so when we're looking at a curriculum and you've got so much choice here in the UAE, what criteria should parents be considering?
4: It's such a good question, Georgia. I mean, we've got 17 different curriculums on offer in the UAE, which I think is probably unique in the world. I mean, there's everything from, you know, the UK, but the ones you've just mentioned, UK, IB, US, Indian, but also Japanese, Russian. I mean, it's it's amazing. So it does pose a real challenge for international families and the family you've just described coming from, you know, different backgrounds, you know, it really is quite a complicated choice. I think there are lots of things to think about, but for me, it's always about your child. And, you know, you know your child best. What sort of learning style is going to suit them um and i think you touched in the previous interview on the kind of differences between some of the curriculums and you know certainly with the british curriculum which i would still argue is is still the kind of gold standard or i think you know there's still lots of evolving for it to do um, you know that does provide you with a very uh, high standard of education it's academically rigorous it's it's benchmarked so you know you, you kind of track a child's progress through so you sort of know where they are at any given stage and certainly if you're thinking of transferring on internationally or you're transferring back maybe to the uk uh, then that makes it very easy for you because it's recognised wherever you go in the world. But equally, the IB curriculum is a very popular curriculum over here um, and you know provides a different style of education, as, as Tabitha was describing earlier. Um, and for some children, that's a really viable way of learning, You know, that more interdisciplinary approach, uh, more values-based and, and equally transferable too. A lot of international schools are now offering the IB curriculum too. And lots offer a hybrid curriculum. So you actually can do the British curriculum up until the GCSEs and then you can switch to do the IB. diploma uh, for your final two years so it's really kind of working out what's going to be the best fit for your child what your maybe your future plans are. Although I spoke to a family the other day and said, you know, where do you think you might be in two to three years' time? That you know, I don't know where I'm going to be next week, so I can understand that, that can be a bit of a challenge. So, yeah, but I think you know, from from the British curriculum point of view, it's eminently transferable, and also it's a really it's you know it's highly recognised wherever you go in the world. So you know, if you want to go to university anywhere in the world, they will recognise your your A levels as a qualification to to get you into an
0: undergraduate degree. So Tabitha earlier said that she's going to send one of her children to an IB school I and. Mean, the other two to a British curriculum, what type of traits would your child have for each curriculum
4: well I think with the, with the
0: British curriculum it's
4: I would describe it perhaps as more linear it's very good at putting the building blocks of knowledge in so you know your literacy, literacy is very important numerical skills really important um, it has a very broad base up until about sort of 16 where you've got your kind of core curriculum your maths english sciences and your foundation curriculum which is uh, your humanities it's your art your creativity um, your PE your physical kind of well-being that sort of thing but um, Whereas I'd say with the IB one, you know, for example, um, in the in the kind of PYP, the primary years program, you would take a theme like, let's say, um, the world we live in. within that you might take the theme of water and then you would explore water across a kind of range of different disciplines. So, you know, you might, uh, in science, you might be looking at, um, you know, water into ice. In geography, you might be looking at the water table. So you sort of, it's more of sort of thematic style of learning. And for some children, that's brilliant and they love that interdisciplinarity. Um, But for others, it's more important they kind of get the building blocks in and they have that kind of steady linear progression.
0: Is there crossover? So if you start your kids in a British curriculum and they've done that for four years and then a brand new school opens and you love the head and you love the facilities but their IB is there crossover?
4: Yes absolutely no very very much so I mean you know the, the foundational knowledge is very similar in 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 most curriculums really if you think about it um, it's just
0: really the style of teaching that's that's slightly different. So if the British curriculum is still perceived by many as better and, and sort of from a global perspective what how are the other curricula competing and, and is there a kind of desire to compete, you know, but between, but what would it be, I suppose, between education or exam boards rather than countries?
4: Yes, I mean, I think, you know, every every country has its own sort of um, curricula, curriculum that's designed for its country and its country's needs. I mean, I think this, this kind of gets almost in a sense more to the philosophy of education, you know, um, any economy relies on a well-educated workforce, but then you kind of have to argue that education is not purely about being fit for the economy it's also about kind of you know learning and academia but equally you do you know you do want to produce well educated you know kind of people who are going to go on to help you grow your economy so it's a sort of always a bit of a balancing act, and I think that's where a lot of this debate is coming from at the moment. I think that people are saying but you know the school curriculums globally not just, just the British curriculum are not fit for purpose because they're not fit for today's world and we were just saying you know you think about how we watch television you know how we travel now that all of that's changed so quickly in the last few years and education hasn't really kind of caught up with that. But education is a big ship to steer. So it takes a while to, to kind of move it. Um, in the right direction. And it's really foundational. If you get it wrong, <laughs> that's, that's a big impact. Um, so there's a lot of debate at the moment around kind of working out what is the right sort of curriculum. I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, for example, in Estonia, uh, they have embedded some kind of key skills into their, into their kind of education program in terms of problem solving. Um, Singapore have a lot of, um, kind of engineering type skills where you're designing something and then it fails and then you refine it. And so they're learning kind of about resilience and they're learning about failure and they're learning about picking themselves up and moving on. So there are definitely curriculums around the world that are starting to embed what we might call kind of 21st century skills.
0: That is a long way from learning the the kings of England in order, in rote, you know, and how many queens Henry VIII had.
4: Absolutely. And I think that's the fundamental change, isn't it, really? Is that, you know, do we need to know that knowledge? I mean, I think there, is a, there is a role for some rote learning. There's just some stuff we need to know. But actually, we can access knowledge now much more easily than we ever could before. But what we do need to know is how to critically analyse that information, how to, you know, fact check that information, make sure it's accurate, it's not fake news. Um, so actually, education needs to be as much about that nowadays about assessing and and analyzing information and communication skills um you know nobody teaches you how to put together a pitch deck and actually maybe that is quite a valuable life skill um to to do
0: so i think education's got a yeah it's a very interesting time it really is an interesting time. I mean, I don't know a great... So I know quite a lot about the IB. I know quite a lot about the British curriculum. I don't know a great deal about the Indian curriculum. And I know that one of our colleagues here decided to not go with that because her feeling was that it wouldn't suit her child. And actually, she didn't enjoy school herself. What is the difference there with, with the Indian curriculum? So a lot of the English
4: uh, Indian curriculum was sort of based quite heavily on the kind of British curriculum. Um, and in fact, the Indian curriculum is undergoing some changes at the moment as well. There's definitely a re of of that. I think probably people would say, certainly people that I've spoken to, that it's a little bit more kind of didactic and perhaps a little bit more rote learning um, orientated and I think that's what they're evaluating now and moving perhaps
0: more towards
4: a more kind of interactive and more kind of collaborative style of teaching.
0: Really interesting. Of course cost comes into it as well because all these British curriculum schools or at least the ones I know about, they charge a premium. Like they really... They're really like, we're a great school, but you're going to pay for it. But that, but that's because, you know,
4: any school's biggest cost will be its teaching staff. That's always going to be the, the largest percentage of any school kind of, you know, um, salary. Salary bill is always the biggest proportion of it, or certainly should be. And, um, you know, if you're employing really good teachers. And, you know, what I think is interesting about the British national curriculum or English national curriculum, whatever, is that it's actually that's just the framework. It's actually one part of the school's curriculum. And the IB is the same. It's just one part of the school's curriculum. Um, and actually good schools go way beyond the curriculum they they do you know they have amazing teachers who teach these lessons in creative and imaginative ways to inspire the children who take them on amazing outings who you know do crazy experiments with them um, just you know that's what and that's what you're paying for in a sense is is these amazing teachers
0: okay well that makes me feel a little bit better about the massive school fees that i pay because for example uh, yesterday my son had to take in a pair of tights a banana two pieces of bread and a weetabix for a project on the digestive system, <laughs> so, which well, apparently was revolting, uh, but very educational. So,
4: and he will never forget that lesson. I, I bet he came out of school absolutely buzzing. Well yeah. done, the teacher for putting it in such an imaginative yeah, yeah. way,
0: Mister Burgess. <laughs> Big love for Mister Burgess. Although it was a real pain in the bottom to have to get all those things together. The tights, <laughs> the ti- Literally, no, I didn't send in tights. So I had, I had a pair. This is probably too much information for the radio, but I had a pair of um, pop socks which is something from the 1970s. Very useful still. (laughs) The pop socks went in and were filled with Weetabix, which sounds utterly revolting. Uh, So there we go. (laughs) But very live. (laughs) A very informative interview before I started going on about the digestive system. Thank you so much, Fiona. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in and giving us all those details. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Right, Fiona McKenzie, uh, MA, the head of Carfax Education UAE, uh, who, of course, helps and advises parents to access the best education for their children. This is Eye on Education, on the Agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: Now, the weekend is on its way. And I suppose the weekend is probably the opportunity... For when children and their parents, or I suppose when children are most likely to spend their pocket money. And as I've been explaining over the last hour or so, uh, there is a massive debate going on in our household at the moment. My nine-year-old and my seven-year-old are ganging up against us. Uh, they are pretty convinced that A, they should be given pocket money and B, it should be quite a lot. I'm joined on the line uh, by an expert in the field, uh, Marilyn Pinto, who is the founder of KFI Global, who teaches children how to manage their personal finances. Marilyn, lovely to speak to you. How are you?
5: I'm very good, Georgia. Thank you for having me again.
0: It's lovely to have you on the radio. Now, uh, lots of people have been sending messages about how much pocket money they give their children. Zena asked Catboy from Dubai 92 because he happened to be around. I think he's actually on air right now. Uh, don't turn over your radio, though. I'm better. Sorry, Catboy. That might not be true. Um, he has teenagers and a daughter in primary school. So he sees both sides. Uh, this is what he had to say.
6: Yeah, I don't give the kids any money, but uh, whenever they want something, we give it to them. We don't give them a set amount every week because there are weeks they're not going anywhere. But if they are going somewhere, they get the money.
0: They get stupid money. They, they spend more money than I spend. I don't have any money. You know, I'm paying for one at universities on a fortune every week. And I'm paying for the course and I'm paying for the housing. And uh, the two that are here, they get everything. The Dubai kids, the spoiled rotten.
5: Is it I, need,
0: I mean, I would add another zero sometimes. What difference if they're going to a water park or somewhere like that,
5: you know, it's 300 dirhams, something like that.
0: My goodness me, Catboy's kids are doing well. Uh, Marilyn, what do you <laughs> think? Is it a good idea to give children pocket money? Should they just be given it or should they earn it?
5: Um, first of all, I, I think we're looking at uh, a bigger problem for a very narrow keyhole. Uh, the idea of giving kids pocket money is to teach them uh, how to manage money, how to make smart money decisions. And giving kids an allowance is just one tiny way of doing it, which is why maybe in some ways Catboy is right. He doesn't give his kids a regular allowance. Um, so there's no, like I, I've told you before, there's no you know, overriding research, which proves that kids who get uh, an allowance are actually more financially literate than kids who don't. So there's, there's research going either way. But um, like I said, it's a very narrow way of looking at a bigger problem. I think what we should be doing as parents is wondering whether our kids are properly financially educated. Do they understand that the different ways that they spend money, the different modes of payment actually affect how much they spend? So if you give them cash, they are likely to spend a lot less uh, than if you give them a credit or a debit card or they're just paying with the app or tapping it on the POS. That's one very key point that they need to understand. The second point is, impulse buying. Uh, if most kids, you know, Dubai kids uh, would like, um, I guess at the weekend, they're spending their time at the mall, but they're immediately hit with a ton of marketing messages, of advertising messages. Have we educated them enough to evaluate these messages and see whether it's right for them and make the right buying choices? Unfortunately, not. Um, and, and this is what's more important. We're talking to them about impulse buying, talking to them about what what constitutes an impulse buy, why do people do, uh, why do people engage so much in impulse buy. There, there's research to show that people actually spend close to 1.1 million dirhams on impulse buys over the course of their lifetime, and you'll agree that's a, that's a pretty substantial amount. Um, the other thing is maybe talk about ways that you can stop impulse buys. And there are so many ways that you can do this. Now, this is not likely to happen in one conversation. Uh, This requires consistent talking about money and how you spend money with the kids, which I understand is hard, but I think anything of value uh, takes a little bit of time.
0: It's really interesting you say that um, pocket money is an opportunity to teach children about how to manage money, because lots of people have been getting in touch with similar views. Some of them are slightly tongue in cheek, I think. Nitin says, no pocket money for my eight and a half year old. He has a performance-based contract where he earns based on multiple activities which I love. Arno says I give my kids pocket money in Bitcoin using the Lightning Network uh, when they've been doing tasks. It teaches them about hard money, deflation and time preference. Right now it also teaches them about how something (laughs) that was valued one thing yesterday can be valued nearly nothing the next. Um, This lady says I give no pocket money to any of my children even for the eldest who goes to school. I've told her there's no need for it as her lunch is packed and her school transportation is included i mean you're probably not that keen on on doing these sort of these numbers but would you would you have any advice on how much children should be given according to their age because that's what i'm going with at the moment my nine-year-old and my seven-year-old and one person's written in saying my seven-year-old would get 70 and my nine-year-old would get 90 but that is mega money in my view
5: that is mega money, but again, it depends on what you what you feel is right. There is no right answer. I wish I could come up with one right answer for everybody, but there isn't. You need to figure out what what is that going to what What is the pocket money that you give your kids? What is it going to encompass? Are they paying for snacks and things that they want to like buy by themselves? Are you are you buying everything else? So it really depends on what guidelines you put around it. If your guidelines are vague, then they're going to be pretty uh, pretty difficult to actually um, to to make a decision with this. But that is a great Opportunity for us to think about what we want them to spend your money, uh, what you want them to spend their allowance on. So it and and how old they are. So yeah, the old, every year you can increase it uh, just a little bit. Uh, and seventy ninety seems like a good um, seems like a like pretty good numbers in, in in the ballpark range. But also maybe change the conversation around to just you know, you are, uh, you're, you're getting an allowance to how about earning your allowance, which is what all adults have to do. No one just gives us money at the end of the month. We we, we work hard for it. So why should it be different for children? Why should we be teaching them that it is any different for them? Um, so I think changing the conversation around to how you earn the money or the weekend is an opportunity to, to, to earn money. So what are you going to do for it? Uh, makes them think differently about it. It changes their mindset a lot.
0: There, there you are. This weekend is your opportunity to change the mindset of your children around money. That is a very, very good advice there. Salient thoughts uh, as we approach the weekend. Thank you so much, Marilyn. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, George. Always, always fantastic to speak to Marilyn Pinto, the founder of KFI Global. I'm loving the messages that are coming on, on, uh, on Pocket Money. Glenn says, add a zero next to the age. Uh, this person says, if your kids have some saved pocket money already, teach them that their money can work for them. Compounding principles. Parents can act as an investment account and pay a set amount of interest on their save pocket money at the end of an agreed term. If they choose to use their money, they won't reap the benefits of keeping and adding to it uh, in an investment account longer term. And then it becomes, then it comes down to the decision of, do I really want this? I love how, how scientific parents are getting on, on how they give their children money. It's really good news. This is Eye on Education, on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School Yourford, Dubai.
0: It is our Ion on Education special and on the programme today we are discussing the fact that students are dropping out of universities in both the United States and the United Kingdom In droves. In fact, the number in the US who have attended college, but left before completing their degree has risen to 39 million. That is up from an already incredibly high number of 36 million in 2019. And it's according to a report that's just come out by the National Student Clearinghouse Research Centre. Education experts say this 8.6% increase partly reflects the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the academic outcomes of college students who've basically faced unprecedented financial and personal challenges during the pandemic. And it is the same picture in the United Kingdom, as new figures from the student loans company there show that 18,000 students withdrew from courses in February of this year alone. That's an increase of more than 4,000 last year and a 28% annual increase. Ultimately, many students are struggling to keep on their university courses because they've lost a job or income, they've missed their studies because of illness, or they're having to stay home and care for family members who caught COVID-19. The studies show that Black and Hispanic students continue to make up a disproportionate share of the total number, in particular, in the United States. Now, joining us to talk through these figures and to discuss the potential universality of the statistics is Maliki Alhaj, who is Director of Knowledge and Innovation for the al Foundation of Education. Joining me now on Microsoft Teams. Hello, lovely to speak to you.
7: Hi, Georgia. Thank you so much for the invite. Oh, absolute pleasure, Malakai. Lovely to
0: get uh, your expertise on the airwaves. Uh, now, tell me, the foundation works across many countries, so you have a uniquely sort of global insight on this topic. Yeah. Do you feel yes. that COVID nineteen has had a negative impact on college age students around the world?
7: Listen, Georgia, you just um, shared very, very alarming and troubling stats. So um, it's no brainer that the answer is yes, but we always hope, we're always positive, we always work um, to innovate learning solutions. Um, It's really quite very unfortunate what is happening in the US and to hear these numbers. Um, Listen, um, education is often referred to as the great equalizer. Education, open doors to jobs, open. um, doors to resources, to skills that elevate families, uh, make them survive and even thrive. So there is a big problem, yes, with these dropout rates um, on individuals, on families, on uh, corporate sectors, on on economies. So on individuals, um, people who leave college before finishing unfortunately are more likely to face unemployment and earn less than those who complete bachelor degrees. And just imagine more and more of those you know um, young individuals um, that are in the market they don 't have degrees they don 't have skills that the market is in need. Now we have the private sector the the um, is in, in in trouble as well because they cannot um, recruit retain uh, what do they need to support their growth and hence um, affecting you know GDP of countries. Um, You've shared those stats. Let me share with you um, another stats, um, if you don't mind. So, Georgia, one additional year of education per individual support um, an increase in their salaries by 10% support growth of GDP economies by 18%. So hence the importance of education, hence the importance it is of, it is critical right now, locally, regionally, globally, that we think of new learning opportunities and initiatives that those youth are asking for. We need to think, yes, COVID has been troubling and, and it's unfortunate what everybody has been going through um, at, at different levels, mental health, financial crisis, you name it. So there is a, def, um, a need here to, to think and innovate uh, new ways. And the higher education landscape, it's not just the higher education landscape that's changing, it is the education landscape that's changing and that we need to um, to think of. Um, I found those numbers yeah. that you just quoted there yeah.
0: absolutely fascinating. The idea that yeah. every extra year of education That's, makes a difference. Uh-huh. I, right. So, how about the students who are studying and they suddenly. I mean, this is more a sort of anecdotal conversation, and I, I don't like to argue with statistics because you invariably lose. But there yeah. are some students that maybe. Could they start the course and think, well, hang on a sec, if I'm out in the labour market now, I'm learning more, I'm earning straight away, I'm not building up a massive student loan. You know, maybe university isn't for me, maybe college isn't for me and I can do better in the big wide world all without a massive you know, student loan around my neck.
7: Spot on, spot on, definitely. I'm not going to argue this whatsoever. Um, and hence, and hence, you know, we're talking about a different educational landscape and not just higher educational landscape. Listen, um, there's a huge shift on what the corporate sector is asking for, the skills that is needed, um, the digital skills that are needed. Um, 84, if we speak here, um, um, let's just shift, if you don't mind, a bit focus on the UAE. In the UAE, 84 percent of businesses um, are looking for skills for young talents. I'm not talking about bachelor degrees or master degrees. They're looking for skills simply um, to recruit talents with digital capacities, with digital knowledge, with digital literacy. And on the other hand, um, more than 34 percent of the graduates in the market don't have these skills. So hence, it's very important um, to, to think of new modalities of education that will work, that will provide um, economies with the right skills to, to, to thrive and to survive the, all the challenges that we have. And, and Georgia, this cannot happen you know, with a sole stakeholder, it's the it's, it's the responsibility of all of us. It is the responsibility of academic bodies, it's responsibilities of academic institutions, of the government, of NGOs and the private sector. So it is, all of us are responsible to sit together and try to find solutions. And it, it, you know, just lately, we've launched um, a new program initiative under um, a, a bigger umbrella initiative called NEMU. And for your um, uh, listeners who don't speak Arabic, NEMU means growth. And we believe we need to grow the skills of the young talent so that they add value into economies and societies. And this program is with our partner, Udacity. And it's all about um, um, Acquiring for the youth in specific Emiratis uh, for now with digital skills and specialization mm-hmm. and technical skills. This cannot happen alone. Uh, we, we needed to sit with the government. We needed to sit with the corporate sector. We needed to sit with the youth as well and talk about the gaps and what are the solutions.
0: Do you think one secret might be to have mm-hmm. less either sort of less intensive courses so that students can work more easily alongside their studies? Or do you think the opposite is true that the degree courses should be shorter so that students can get them over and done with quickly?
7: It's a very, thanks, Georgia, for the question. It's a very tricky question. And I I, I don't think there is the one answer for that, because there's no one solution that fits all. I mean solutions in the UAE are so different than solutions in Lebanon or in Jordan or in uh, in egypt it's it 's really about um, what is the infrastructure of the country of the youth we are working in, really understand the capacities of the uh, of the organization um, understand the capacity of the country and what is needed over there um, but just like a quick answer for your question. Um, It's not anymore the standard linear model of education that we're talking about, uh, spot on that. So, you know, it's not like we graduate from high school, then we go to university for degrees, and then we go to work. It's more about now lifelong learning for me and you. I mean, I think in five years, if we don't skill ourselves with with some sort of, you know, if we don't go through upskilling and reskilling, everybody would would have a challenge in their jobs. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. I fear, you know, I mean, I fear in my industry that um, unless I keep up to date with all of the sort of social media developments and Do all the, the different ways in which you can broadcast now, that you can quickly mm. find yourself becoming... Uh, well, slightly redundant <laughs> or, or at yeah. least appearing something yeah. of a Luddite. I yeah. mean, are you worried about the impact that COVID-19 had on this generation, specifically of college age students? You know, we talk on this program a lot about the younger children, but, mm. but I've not really thought about, you know, university students in the, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, because, of course, they've been learning remotely as well. Yeah.
7: Yeah, I mean, yes, the worry is always there. But listen, we have seen. Um, we talk to a lot of you know stakeholders, universities, and and different stakeholders. The worry is there, but we are really hopeful that um, everything is happening is to the best interest of the youth. Um, again, in the UAE, it's uh, you know I've been living here in the UAE for twenty years, and um, um, the the changes, the how how the higher education landscape has changed is just tremendous and this goes back to to governments and their strategic plans to keep improving um 30 years back uh georgia i mean uh kids were leaving the UAE to go study in, in the US or the UK or Australia or Europe in different parts of the world. It's kind of the opposite now. Um, the, it's, there's a shift of movement um, of students and this goes back to governments and how they want to improve the academic sector over here. And from firsthand experience, um, we've had we have had this great experience with a partnership with the Ministry of Education, who is supporting the growth and the, the journey of online education in the objective to provide more access to online education. So we've recently um, launched the university consortium for quality online program and this partnership with the ministry of education georgia and in the uae of course and with nine universities is all about providing more access um, hybrid um, uh, to uh, to the youth whether it's a bachelor or professional certification um those short courses that you are talking about in the hope that it elevates where they are and hence to have a better livelihood for themselves and their families and the economies they uh, they are living and um, operating in. So yes of course COVID has just to answer a question um, it's been quite very disruptive but um, um, you know there has been great um, um, initiatives working um, towards making better solutions because of COVID. Really
0: interesting stuff there. Thank you so much. A message that's just come in uh, from this person who's anonymous said, COVID allowed us to realise that the current education system needs to be updated. It's outdated and people realised this during the pandemic. Uh, someone there who agrees with you, Malake. Thank you yes, so much for you. your time. Really appreciate
7: thank it. You for,
0: thank you very much. Fascinating insights. Yes, Malake Alhaj Director for Knowledge and Innovation there at the Al Guerrea Foundation of Education. This is I on Education on the Agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: Hello there. Welcome back, 1226. We are discussing the causes behind college dropouts on the programme today as the number of students in the US and the UK who leave before completing their degree has increased by droves. Basically, in February alone in the UK, they saw a 28% annual increase. So, is this a problem that we see here in the United Arab Emirates and what can be done to mitigate it? We reached out to Dr. Yusra Osman, who is a lecturer in education at Middlesex University Dubai to get their views on this. She says
8: actually the situation here is the opposite. So enrollment and completion rates have increased. There are a few reasons for this of course you know COVID being one of them we're always pointing our finger at the pandemic and we'll come to that but first it's important to understand that the UAE has a unique demographic and socio-economic dynamic. Um, it's not like the rest of the world and so the type of students it attracts are those who are already planning and are financially able to study abroad. But why choose the UAE? So first, UAE is in the middle. For those coming from Africa, Europe, Southeast and Far East Asia, it's within close proximity. But more importantly, it now has a wide range of international universities that have opened here um, with you know a growing number of programs, whether students want to study computer science, education, literature, medicine, you know, the list goes on, giving students plenty of good quality, quality educational options.
0: Yusra also pointed out that it makes sense to study here
8: if you want to get a job here. UAE is a hub, so it's become a new destination with so many opportunities for during and after university. You know, People are now coming here to find jobs, so it just makes more sense to go to university here and have a smooth and easier transition um, within their career.
0: Yusra also told us that it was smart of the United Arab Emirates to ensure that there was minimal disruption in terms of learning during the peak of the pandemic.
8: And coming back to COVID, so the way that the UAE handled the pandemic, it was straightforward, safe and quick. And also a lot of the universities remained open, you know, with face-to-face learning or hybrid learning, which is quite different compared to other countries. And families who already live here, their children are, you know, within... You know, excellent schools with different kinds of uh, curriculum, IB, British, American, Australian. Again, it's an extensive list. So the students have a choice of universities from all over the world. Some of the families, you know, plan to send their children to U.S., U.K., Europe. But when the pandemic hits, it didn't make much sense anymore. Um, When you put finance and health into perspective, they have, you know, good quality education here with so many options already. And it's safer. And that's very similar to students traveling to the UAE. Um, As I already mentioned, you know, it isn't too far. Um, It has on-campus teaching and it's a more affordable option. So overall, you know, there is value for money. But it would be, you know, useful to look at how this trend continues in the next few years, of course. Dr. Yusra Osman
2: there, who is a lecturer at uh, in education at Middlesex University. Lots of messages on LinkedIn. We put up a post last evening. Andrew Prince got in touch. He's director at consultant uh, or, or, and consultant at Charles Monat Associates. Uh, he said, I did a four-year engineering apprenticeship alongside one full day at college and one evening per week to gain my degree. Biased, admittedly, but believe that was the best foundation for me gaining both practical and theory. And uh, we're also going to hear from Real Alhuni, who is a filmmaker. She was involved in a lot of the Expo 2020 production. Here's what she has to say.
6: I strongly feel that in the media industry, you benefit so much more from on the ground work experience than anything you can learn in a classroom. And I have very clear memories of when I was studying at university in the UK, I was studying media studies with a specialization in television. I was simultaneously working at the BBC. And the two worlds just didn't resemble each other. Everything I was exposed to at work was years ahead of what I was being taught at university. And as a result, it really made me question the benefits of my degree and how relevant it was to the industry. And as a result, since then, now that I have my own, you know, video production agency and, and I work in TV, I rarely look at people's um, degrees, especially when they're applying for positions and jobs. The first thing I look at is their experience. Where if they work. And I often give them a challenge to do, whether it be something that showcases their talent or their expertise, because at the end of the day, that's actually what I need. And it doesn't really matter to me how well or how badly they did at uni.
2: So Carl Casey also got in touch. He's a recruitment and outreach specialist at Zayed University. He says, there are many things you could look to attribute the, to dropout rates in the US. But key factors come back to tuition fees and associated living costs poor quality or standard of teaching, disillusion students and the potential of high student debt offset against any possible employment benefits. That is a real problem. Abdel Rabi,
0: the public relations executive, uh, also wrote us a message on LinkedIn. Uh, He suggested that in the UAE, most companies require degrees because they have to register this in government databases. So this is a major reason why it's unlikely for students to start to drop out of college here. Also, education is taken more seriously in the United Arab Emirates, especially amongst the larger expat population, where the notion that one must have a college degree to be successful. Really interesting comments coming in there. Do keep them coming. Uh, four double zero one or on zero four eight seven one double five double zero or go find us on LinkedIn. Uh, Zina put up the post on LinkedIn under her own, uh, her own name, Zena Zalamaya, and I will re-message it or retweet it or whatever the description <laughs> is, relink it. Is that what you say? Re-link re-post? on LinkedIn? repost, repost. Uh, but do check out Zena's uh, profile on LinkedIn. This is Eye on Education on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to U 7.
0: Now every week during our Eye on Education segment, we like to turn our attention to a school in a different part of the world to find out what it's like In their classrooms. So far we've travelled to Indonesia to speak to the head of a jungle school and to Palestine to speak to the director of the refugee school system there. But today we are going to the north of Europe to find out more about the Finnish education system. I'm joined now on the line by Kasia Majama, I'm so sorry to pronounce your surname incorrectly, I'm probably still getting it wrong, uh, who's a primary school teacher at Ulu University Teacher Training School. Did I get? Did I attempt your name and get it right in any way at all, Kasha?
9: Thank you, George. Uh, I'm honoured to be here on your show. Uh, my name is Kaisa Marjama and I come from Ulu University Training School. From the middle of Finland. Amazing.
0: Now, tell us a bit about the Finnish education system and what sets it apart from, for example, the British curriculum or the IB curriculum.
9: Well, I would say that uh, a slogan, less is more, is something that would describe the Finnish education system very well. Um, The kids in Finland, they don't start their school until they're, uh, not before, they're seven years of age. So that is actually the first compulsory uh, year of uh, education when they turn seven. And um, the school days are, in fact, relatively short. The first and second graders, they only have 20 lessons per week. So it means uh, around four lessons per day. Um, we have uh, our lessons are usually tend to be you know, 45 minutes long. And after each lesson, there is a break and uh, the break lasts for 15 minutes. So uh, I would say that um, in Finland, we consider a child root, a childhood a precious time for kids and uh, kids, should be, uh, um, kids should be kids and enjoy their childhood. And uh, they have time to learn even when they start a bit later, their school, and they don't, we don't have to push them too hard at school and still they learn well.
0: Well, that was what I was going to ask. Like, how do you fit it all in? Because, you know, sometimes you'll find... Well, within my social group, we often complain about the number of public holidays we have here in the United Arab Emirates because we're always a bit like we pay quite a lot for the school fees. Seems like the kids are out for half the time. We recently had a week long break for Eid, for example, um, which came only two weeks after a two week spring break. And yet you guys are starting when the kids are seven and only doing 20 hours a week. How do they learn how to read and write and all the science and maths and history and everything else?
9: Well, they don't only learn at school. They learn a lot outside of school. And many of the children, when they come to school, they already know how to read and write a bit. So, um, yeah, trust me, they do learn enough what is needed. And I think the PISA results in Finland they speak for themselves. They as do. well, um, yeah,
0: yeah, they do. I mean, you're well known. I have to say, the Nordic countries, I think Finland and Sweden, you're both well known for starting your education system so much later, and yet. Overperforming when it comes to educational results, basically
9: yeah, but of course a lot of it also has to do with our societies. Uh, we live in welfare societies where our residents are well taken care of, and uh, we can expect to have a safe and secure and a meaningful life when we live in Finland. So of course, the society affects a lot as well.
0: I mean, often when we speak to teachers in far-flung places, they're in very impoverished environments. And for example, nothing is really provided by the school bar the education. So pupils have to supply their own pens and paper, their own lunch. Uh, Obviously, there's very frequently, there's never a uniform. What's the situation uh, at a Finnish school? You know, do you provide lunch there? You know, what's what's the
9: scope of the day? Uh, well, everything is provided by the state for the for the Finnish students. Uh, they actually get a free warm lunch at school every day, and uh, yeah, of course the books and everything, pencils and such like are provided. And even if a child lives more than five kilometers away from school, uh, transpo- transportation is also provided. Those kids. Wow.
0: We spend a fortune on buses in this country. (laughs) The school bus is considered one of the biggest expense. Uh, I mean, lots of teachers around the world compelling of sort of too much admin work and having to deal with pushy parents. Is that something as a teacher, don't worry, no no one's listening in Finland right now. You can be completely honest. Is that something you have to deal with?
3: Uh,
9: Of course, there's some admin we have to do. We have to mark our absent students and write individual learning plans for for some of the students um, but I don't think it is something I would need to complain about um, and uh, did you mention pushy parents?
0: I did, there's a lot of them here, yeah.
9: I'm not one of them um, okay <laughs> um, yeah I feel that uh, parents in Finland appreciate teachers quite a bit, teaching is still a very appreciated and valued profession in Finland um, Teachers, actually, they have to uh, complete their, a master's degree from the university. Have, they have to study for approximately five years. It is research-based, based our um, learning there. So, yeah, they appreciate us teachers. And I think that is the reason they don't tend to be too pushy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you have some difficult parents, I feel it helps a lot when you um, – meet them with a colleague. Um, Team teaching, actually, is very common in Finland nowadays. And um, so when you meet the parents together with your colleague, uh, it gives quite a bit of credibility and uh, um, it's easier to be um, proactive with them rather than be active if you're alone. With
0: I'm, well, I'm so interested by that expression team teaching because I've heard of teaching assistants, which people have uh, often in classes here, especially to deal with the larger classes. But I, but this idea of team teaching is interesting.
9: Yeah, um, it is. Uh, it, I think it um, increases the well-being of teachers uh, quite a bit and of course that all benefits the students um, when you can plan together with a colleague um, it's two brains is more than one um, so you come up with um, more ideas and um, yeah then when difficult situations arise with the students you're able to talk them out with your colleague and um, form a strategy and um, yeah I feel yeah everyone should team teach
0: oh, it sounds absolutely fascinating it's not uh, not something i'd that has crossed my radar before i mean other than for example team teaching what what do you feel other countries could learn from the finnish education system
9: um of course you cannot import our society as such but there are some elements um, that you c- could um, take from our system and maybe one of them is investing in high-quality teacher education, definitely. Because when the the teacher's um, expertise is high, uh, they're also trusted well in the society. And what means, for example, in Finland, we we don't have any school inspections. We can really focus on what is essential, and that is the learning of the the students. Um, And maybe another thing I would say is that uh, when the curriculum is uh, is being formulated or being revised, revised uh, uh, the the school system should remember to uh, involve teachers in the curriculum process. Because teachers are really the ones who know uh, the daily life and they know what kind of content really fits what age group of students. So. Um,
0: Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on the line. I fear I'm about to completely massacre your name again. So I'm going to ask you to say it because I just can't get the pronunciation right. I'm so
9: sorry. Yeah, my, my name is Kaisa. Kaisa Mariamma. Thank you for Amazing you.
0: absolutely beautiful name. Thank you very much, and my apologies for not pronouncing it correctly. I was going to make a make a try, but I, but I would almost certainly would have got it wrong. Thank you so much. Really interesting to hear. a primary school teacher in Ulu University Teacher Training School discussing the importance there of really valuing your teachers and finding and trusting your quality staff. This is Eye on Education on the agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating. Personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people.
0: Now, more than 400 teaching jobs are on offer in the United Arab Emirates ahead of the new academic year. Schools are seeking everything from classroom teachers to music tutors, subject specialists, plus those who focus on special educational needs, as well as leadership roles. Now, with close to 250 jobs in Dubai, there are also more than 100 vacancies in Abu Dhabi and close to a dozen. In Sharjah, And there are some in the Northern Emirates as well. Now, most of the jobs are for an August start date and the new vacancies are being advertised on TESS, which is formerly known as the Times Educational Supplement. Kudos to the team at the National for spotting that story. And we are asking, how difficult is it to recruit good staff? I'm joined by a woman who has to recruit many staff, in fact, probably because the school is expanding, uh, Claire Turnbull, who is the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guilford, Hi, Claire. How are you doing?
10: Georgia, I'm really well, thank you. How are you?
0: Very well, indeed. Lovely to have you joining us on the line. And it does sound like a lot of schools at the moment must be expanding. They're catering for this influx of new families that we've seen. Is that something that you guys are experiencing at Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai?
10: Yeah, no, absolutely. We we're we're looking at uh, pretty well doubling the size of our school in the next um, ready for next year. So um, we have already staffed for that, and I must admit we're very lucky. We've completed all of our staffing, and we did that in January um, time because not only are we increasing year groups, we are very excited that we're opening year seven as well.
0: Oh wow okay that is that is good news for your team there did you find it difficult to recruit teachers to come to dubai or did you recruit from within the country
10: so we advertised as you said through the tes and um we had we were v- like many schools out here, I think there were a lot of applications. It's looking at the quality of those applications, isn't it? As well, um, there are shortage subjects, um, and again, we were we were very um, pleased with the quality that we had in those shortage subjects. So we, I, I went through um, just under two thousand applications for the for the 2030 teaching jobs that we had here at the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Um, Um, to make sure that we were able to pick out uh, the best. Is there a shortage? Yes, perhaps in some subjects. Um, uh, We were ahead of the curve, so that was lucky. Um, But um, uh, there is a worldwide shortage uh, uh, of teachers. I think a lot of teachers um, have have said, you know what, we worked very, very hard through COVID times uh, and let's try something new, which is really sad because in my mind, there's no better profession than education and teaching. And I would hope that we can support our teachers to love that career. I mean,
0: obviously, as, as a new school with an amazing campus, it's probably not that difficult for you to attract quality teachers. But what type of packages do teachers expect nowadays to come out to teach in Dubai?
10: I think it's fundamentally, it's about wanting to be looked after, isn't it? And and recognised professionally. So, you know, that's going to come as a whole package. Um, One's looking at salary, of course, but also how we look after them on their onboarding process, uh, their accommodation, and perhaps most importantly, for people who are excited about coming to Dubai and the innovative education sector it is, it's what's SCPD like. What professional development can we offer? What is that real richness of a professional community, as well as also looking after their 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 personal and their basic needs? It's a combination.
0: As a British curriculum school, do most of your teachers come from the UK?
10: So, all of ours are British qualified. Um, We stipulate that as a requirement for here, um, uh, apart from specifically our wonderful Arabic and Islamic team. Um, This coming from from in September, um, we've got a mixture. They're coming from uh, the UK. They're coming from British international schools around the world, uh, all all over the place. And then a few who were out of contract are coming from here within Dubai
0: really interesting stuff. As one of the new schools, do you feel that there's a buzz around you at the moment? Is that why you think you're finding it easy to recruit?
10: I think there is a buzz um, uh, around uh, Dubai still still, and education still. There is obviously, you know, the new kid on the block. There's there's interest in that as well. But hopefully um, uh, uh, because of what we've done this year so far and because of our real links back to RGS in Guildford, we have a lot of interest from people who know the homeschool, know who we are, know what we do and want to come out here and be part of it. So I think it's, yes, as an element of the new school, but actually far more is about who we are as the Royal Grammar School and our connections to back home.
0: Really interesting to get those insights on exactly how we are recruiting teachers in this country and whether or not there are enough quality teachers looking to come out to the UAE. Uh, Claire Turnbull, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
10: Absolute pleasure. Have a great weekend.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Claire Turnbull there, who is the principal of Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. (laughs) That's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.